welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. <laughs> I'm Eric. And I'm Laura. <laughs> the audience that is we... Laura. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, we get so used to the order of these things. Yeah, now that we've completely confused everybody who listens to <laughs> the show, it's safe to say Andrew's not with us this week, but uh, we will do our best uh, in his absence. This week... Choo Choo, we're on the Hogwarts Express for what's sure to be another lovely, enchanting, peaceful, safe ride to Hogwarts. As they say, the third time's the charm, and this year everything's gonna be a okay. Right, everyone? I'm yeah. so I feel good about this. Excited for a therapeutic, idyllic train ride through the British countryside. It's gonna be great. Well, before we get to chapter by chapter, there was some pretty big news earlier this week that was confirmed. We did an episode on it last week, episode 606, but now we can say with 100% certainty, there is a Harry Potter television series that will be coming in the not-too-distant future. Woo! On Max. <laughs> That's what we wanted for such a long time. Yes, on Max, drop the HBO, just the Max. You know, it's so weird we don't have the sound effects. We should have uh, asked Andrew. Maybe he can drop them in. Oh, ring some bells and yeah. alarms. And oh, ooh. is anyone good at imitating them? Like, can somebody do the? Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, how about we all do the? I'll do. I'll do the. Uh, I'll do the static of the HBO, and then we'll all go. Ah. Ready? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ah. <laughs> yes. That's pretty good. <laughs> We did good. I think we did it. So <laughs> we're, we're going to discuss more about this in bonus muggle cast today, but just kind of the top line details uh, that were revealed earlier this week. JK Rowling is going to be an executive producer on this series. Uh, they are also in the process of courting David Heyman as probably the real <laughs> executive producer. So uh, that was something that we had actually thrown out there. So it's exciting to see that they are going to bring back uh, somebody from the original series that was very much involved. This is going to be what they say a 10-year project. Mm. Uh, so it's going to be something that we can talk about on MuggleCast uh, for a very long time. And uh, it's going to be on the same budget line as Game of Thrones. So that should tell you all you need to know about how much they're willing to invest uh, in this series. And the cast will be completely new uh, from what we're told right now. That doesn't mean there won't be potentially some cameos along the way, but uh, we will get a totally new cast. But as mentioned, we will discuss more about this in bonus muggle cast. Man, but any same, thoughts? Yeah, with the same budget as Game of Thrones, I'm expecting to see like all the goblin rebellions. We're going to see armies of goblins just, you know, laying siege to London. Yeah, yeah. I, it definitely does give them the ability to expand, right? Like we were talking about the possibilities of them doing episodes dedicated to fleshing out other parts of the wizarding world that are more referred to, alluded to in the Harry Potter books, but that we don't actually see. And I think we can get into more of that in this week's bonus. Definitely. And worth mentioning again, episode six, our 606, our last episode, we did go into a lot of detail about this potential announcement at the time. Now, obviously it's been confirmed 
And then Eric, I know you had called out on the previous episode, two other episodes where you know we had kind of given our casting and thoughts around uh, a Harry Potter TV series. Yeah, so um, more fun than the uh, announcement that we now know to be true, I think, is the speculation of what would make a good or, or our thoughts on what could happen. So uh, please check out uh, episode 483 of MogoCast, where we did some fantasy casting, and uh, also 566, which is where we gave all our ideas for a Harry Potter TV show. This seems to be, I got to say, our ideas were so good that this seems to be the least creative or interesting of them all, which is not to say this isn't exciting, but it's to say we came up with a lot of really good ideas that I'd like to see follow uh, this announcement. All right. So it is time for Chapter by Chapter, Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 5, The Dementor. And uh, of course, we'll start off with our seven-word summary. And uh, I elected to go first here, and I'll start with fear. Beer? Fear. We can try beer if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see where this sentence goes when we start it with beer. We can do that on bonus MuggleCast. To your fear, I will say about the murderer abounds on trains there we go (laughs) that's what i was going for i I thought maybe like on train was but i I like how you pluralized it so we're good yeah so fear about the murderer abounds on trains i think that's fairly accurate yeah i think so too don't each week we say this is the one that's going to be redone (laughs) (laughs) harry hermione and the weasleys start off this chapter making their way to King's Cross uh, with their ministry chaperones. So the ministry is very protective of Harry. And this reminded me, and I think we mentioned this two episodes ago when we were doing chapter by chapter, but looking at the Order of the Phoenix chapter when they go to King's Cross, it's very similar. Uh, They have an escort, uh, but it's not the ministry. It is in fact members of the Order of the Phoenix so it just shows you how times change and priorities change. For sure. Scapegoats change. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting seeing uh, the shoe fall to the other side and security being security of Harry being the ministry's foremost concern ends up being the order's concern. No one else will do it in just two short years time. How quickly Fudge and company pivot. Mm. I think, Laura, you brought up that in both cases, the ministry is actually wrong about the entire situation. So it just shows you how good they are at their jobs. Right. Uh. Definitely a commentary on bureaucracy and also the, um, the tendency for certain people in government politics to be overly focused on optics and the optics of their administration and how various goings-on impact that, right? We talked about how Fudge doesn't really, at least from my perspective, he doesn't really care about Harry. He just doesn't want the Harry Potter to die on his watch Mm. at this point in the series. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know Harry. I I also think that uh, by the time he does know Harry and he sees that Harry is going to like be defiant or that he can't use him by that time he's already predisposed to dislike him so it's like 
a perfect like getting to know Harry is to getting to know pretty much like a kid who's not going to play ball, which is a shame. I, I would say a lot of that too has to do with Fudge viewing Harry as an extension of Dumbledore because yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. it has as much to do with Harry himself as it has to do with how Fudge feels about Dumbledore and the threat that he poses. It's very accurate. And actually, uh, Stray Neasel in the Discord brought up that the escort in Order of the Phoenix is much more transparent that they believe they will be attacked. Mm. As opposed to this book, Sirius, as we know him, and at least we have that context of being able to have read the series already, he's not going to try and, you know, hijack a bunch of ministry cars that are driving Harry to King's Cross. It's too public of a space for him to get involved. Well, that comes up later in this chapter too, uh, about whether Sirius would attack Harry and Hogsmeade. And it is noted, and this is something that I never really appreciated reading this book a million times before as I did, that Sirius did uh, apparently attack a muggle-filled street and killed 12 people in public in broad daylight. So the concern that he would actually attack in public or try and hijack a car in the middle of a London street seems plausible when you realize that what got him in Azkaban was, in fact, a daylight public attack. That's a really good point. And I... One of the other things that came to mind is the exposure factor for Sirius too, right? If you compare that in Prisoner of Azkaban to Order of the Phoenix, you know, right now we're looking at it from the standpoint of Sirius coming out of hiding and, and showing himself to the ministry and to Harry. But in Order of the Phoenix, he kind of gets caught for going out of the house and, and going with Harry and company to King's Cross because believe it's Draco and Lucius Malfoy that recognize Sirius uh, on the platform. So, you know, in both cases, uh, both books, you're dealing with Sirius being exposed. For sure. And I think you had brought up the point, Micah, either last episode or the episode prior of Sirius in both books being a prisoner in a couple of very different ways. Definitely. Yeah. So he's never never free? No, he's not. He's never able to really shake that that title. Well, right before getting onto the train, Arthur decides to offer up some information to Harry, but Harry confesses, hey, I overheard you and Molly arguing last night. And Harry says that he's not scared of Sirius because he can't be worse than Voldemort, can he? And I mean, I think this shows a bit of Harry's character in this moment, right? That you know, he's face down Voldemort two straight years. What could Sirius possibly have that would be all that threatening to Harry? But the reality is he doesn't know the full truth of the situation. He kind of only knows part of it. It's really interesting that, and I appreciate that Arthur is able to step away from Molly's wishes here a little bit. He still feels, based on the argument, that Harry should know. Although it's still not the full truth, it very much like feels right uh, in in the way that Arthur is just making sure, I like that he's cut off. It obviously works for a very good reason of like getting Harry to wonder why uh, he said what he did. But I, I just can appreciate that Harry knows anything about this right now, because if Molly had her way, it wouldn't be that way. Which kind of begs the question, if Harry didn't cut Arthur off, how much information would Arthur have actually been willing to give to Harry? You know, he just kind of assumes, okay, you know 
some based on what you overheard Molly and I talking about, but we could speculate a bit on on how far Arthur would have gone. Also, if he didn't have to deal with the train, you know, factor, which which of course uh, plays well uh, for for him not having to go into too much detail. But I think it's true. Arthur really does want to protect Harry. He wants to arm him here with information uh, to ensure that he won't go looking for Sirius, which, you know, as readers, that should also be a flag to us. Well, hold on a second. Why would Harry go looking for Sirius? For sure. Although I have to think that Arthur, and he does mention this, no matter what you might hear, promise me, you're not going to go looking for him. Harry's obviously going to hear about it. This is a really prominent part of the very famous narrative of the murder of Harry's parents and ultimately Harry's defeat of Voldemort. Um, So with Sirius Black, a presumed mass murderer at large, of course he's going to overhear the rumors or like the misrepresentation of what happened, which is ultimately what ends up happening later in the book, right? So it begs the question, would it have been better for Harry to have heard this from someone he trusts and someone who makes him feel safe versus the inevitable fact that he's going to hear it from somewhere else. Sure. I agree. Someone like Draco Malfoy would love to tease Harry with this information. And and that's really where you feel bad for him because he doesn't have a lot of information as it pertains to his past. So even having somebody like Dumbledore sit him down and give him the backstory, I think, could have prevented a lot from happening. Yeah, like but. yeah, Dumbledore doesn't do that. I was going to say, what's preventing Dumbledore from actually doing that, though? Like, it's just like Dumbledore chooses at the end of this chapter not to jump ahead uh, to vaguely mention that using an invisibility cloak to get out of Hogwarts would be a dumb idea because of the Dementors. Uh, so he's kind of low-key warning Harry about not sneaking around under his dad's cloak and tells the whole school this. But it would have been better and more direct for Dumbledore to just sit Harry down and go, hey, you're a target. Um, everyone seems to be just passing the buck. Fudge passes it. Uh, Arthur doesn't really get the chance and probably wouldn't go all the way in because Molly would object. And then Dumbledore, McGonagall, nobody is openly telling Harry. The only way he finds out is by accident. And do we think it's fair that a lot of the burden here is being put on Arthur and on Molly to really decide how much information to give to to Harry. That, that, that seems a bit unfair, in my opinion. That's where somebody like Dumbledore should have stepped in and should have explained the situation to Harry as, as best he could. Here's an interesting point I had never considered before, and a uh, sh- mad shout out to Danielle in the Discord for uh, posting it. She says the reason that Dumbledore likely wouldn't tell Harry about Sirius Black and all that is because it would be admitting that his plan didn't work and he got the Potters killed after all. And I'm thinking, yep, immediately while reading that, I'm like, okay, that makes sense of like canon because Dumbledore, that raises more questions than answers about how Dumbledore failed to protect the Potters. And I can see that being very sticky from a Dumbledore guilt perspective. Totally. Because the, the the question that always seems to be unanswered is why Dumbledore himself was never the Potter's secret keeper would have solved a lot of problems. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting why Dumbledore allowed it to like I get it, you want to make it a friend, but the marauders seem to be the obvious targets, the fellow friends of James Potter. Like you never saw James and Sirius apart from each other. They were like twins, the teachers all say. So who's gonna be their secret keeper? One of their closest friends from Hogwarts? Yeah, duh. At least with Dumbledore, he'd have to put up like the biggest fight. You'd pretty much have to kill him to get the secret out, um, which is real hard to do. So yeah, it doesn't make sense to me really why Dumbledore just didn't do it or uh, assert that he should do it, but then we wouldn't have the plot. Yeah, I can also see Dumbledore thinking that he too might be too obvious of a target for Secret Keeper. And I can also I can also see him saying something along the lines of, you know, his his presence being needed to kind of control the situation. You know how Dumbledore is this uh, epic chess master throughout the series. And I can very much see him thinking that he needs to be above the chessboard, as it were, kind of controlling where things are, where the key players are going. So I can see him thinking that taking himself out of that element and making himself a secret keeper Mm -hmm. would make it harder for him to kind of control the other elements of the, you know, what was going on on the Order of the Phoenix's side of things during the first Wizarding War. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it it just feels. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, also, let's be honest. Working in education is not, it's generally not a very lucrative career. Mm -hmm. People who work in education do it because they feel passionate about it, right? So Dumbledore is maybe just over here like, I don't get paid enough to tell you the truth, Harry. We need Andrew here to do the Dumbledore. No, I was just going to say, we we don't hear (laughs) enough. Laura's Dumbledore (laughs) is actually very good. It is. And, And for those of you who are upset with how we're, you know, talking about Dumbledore right now. Don't worry. We actually may have a few nice things to say about him coming up. Uh, As we talk about our new Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, Harry and Ron, Hermione are on the train to Hogwarts and they go into a compartment where there's this mystery man asleep. And Lupin is described as looking ill and exhausted with gray hair and a shabby set of wizard's robes. He was also carrying a small battered case held together with string. Ron says it looks like one good hex would finish him off. (laughs) It's so mean. (laughs) So is there a bum on the Hogwarts Express? Like, what is going on here? This, This is probably one of the most hardened introductions of a character we get. Um, but yet there's so much power and intellect within this individual. But the way we get introduced to him, you think that if he fell over, he would die, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's humble origins. It's 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 hiding um, kind of, there's a very clever way of just like expectations not being what they are. Who knew when reading this the first time that this was going to end up being likely your most beloved Hogwarts professor? Um, as far as why he doesn't get like get kicked off the train, I think it's because he wrote professor on his, uh, trunk because Hermione looks up and it's like, oh, it's professor RJ. Okay. This guy is not, we don't have to like talk to the driver or the trolley lady about some vagrant. Um, but 
Yeah, it's I really like that it's just unexpected. Um, and this idea that even a sleeping Lupin is better than if they were in it alone, because for when Draco comes by. Um, by the way, I was thinking, maybe you guys back me up. We need a, a Draco sucks count uh, for this book, because like <laughs> at least three separate times in this chapter, I'm like, man, I wish I were counting how many times Draco was awful. Yeah, he's he's pretty nasty. Uh, but Lupin holds him in check twice uh, in this chapter. And speaking of Lupin, there's a really great piece on him on Pottermore, which we will link to in the show notes. And perhaps we can talk a little bit more about uh, once we start to meet his character a little bit more. Uh, but it it has some interesting backstory in terms of how Dumbledore convinced him to become a uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts professor Lupin is coming out of years in a really bad place uh, following the downfall of Voldemort and the loss of James and Lily, allegedly at the hand of Sirius. And now with the Marauders group disbanded, the one group who actually accepted him uh, for who he was, he's been lonely, depressed, he's picking up odd jobs to scrape by. And Dumbledore found him over the summer, invited him to take this position with the promise of unlimited Wolfsbane potion from the one and only Severus Snape. Did he can consult Snape before promising that, uh, by the way? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Probably not. There's also some really great information about Lupin's backstory, his parents, how there was this falling out between his father and Fenrir Greyback, yeah. which ultimately led to... Lupin being bitten. And then there's a really sweet moment in there, I'll give Dumbledore credit, where he shows up at the Lupin household. And, you know, initially Lupin's parents don't want to let Dumbledore in, but Dumbledore is Dumbledore and he magics his way into the house and he's sitting there playing gobstones with a very young 11 year old Lupin. Uh, and Lupin is super excited to go to Hogwarts. So, you know, and Dumbledore creates the shrieking shack for Lupin too, you know, as a place that he can go and transform and and so there just a lot of really great information there and so i'll give dumbledore his uh his due in this moment but laura you have some really kind of interesting information here on the wolfsbane potion yeah um and i don't have a ton of context on the wolfsbane potion but kind of related to it and the fact that the wolfsbane potion was only you know a relatively recent discovery um, you know, in the early 80s or 90s in this story, I wanted to note that Pottermore also says that lycanthropy serves as a metaphor for illnesses that carry a stigma like HIV and AIDS. Um, and for context, with this story taking place in the 1993-94 school year, it's particularly poignant because the AIDS epidemic began in the early 80s. And even by the early 90s, um, there was still a ton of stigma about it here in the United States. AIDS at this point in time was the leading cause of death for Americans aged 25 to 44. Um, and there was just a ton of fear and misinformation um, about these affected populations and it's it feels really poignant because Remus at this point in the story very much falls in this age group. Um, so I think that, you know, we are very much intended to see something, something of a mirror reflecting 
back at us what our society has manifested for people who are, you know, suffering from serious medical conditions like HIV AIDS. Um, And I thought that it was just really poignant that the Wolfsbane potion was a relatively recent discovery at this point in the wizarding world because treatments for HIV and AIDS, um, you know, were, it was something that really didn't (laughs) exist um, when the epidemic first started. And it wasn't until we got into the 90s that there started being treatments for it, like real treatments. Um, So it, it felt, I thought, like a very good metaphor for real world happenings, which is something that we see a lot in Harry Potter. Yeah, it's it's a good meta or it's a good comparison to draw as well because there's no sort of structural or systemic support for werewolves in the Wizarding World right. that we know. Um, in fact, later on in the book series, when Lupin is liaising with werewolves, we see they're pretty much all living in terrible conditions of like they just are not being treated with any dignity. Um, And so it's really unfortunate uh, that the metaphor continues and just continues to align with people for whom the system does not support. They are socially shunned, outcasts. Remus uh, loses his job for being a werewolf. Um, It's just very telling that this is an intentional comparison. For sure. And he's he's not the only one, right? Like this is one group that we see throughout the series that's treated in this manner. And it makes me think about the fountain of magical brethren that exists in the ministry. And it's like, well, are you really all brethren in the truest sense of the word? Or are you just kind of supporting the witch and the wizard that are part of the statue, right? So you think about goblins and house elves and other creatures, they're, they're not treated well uh, in, in this world. And, and, you know, maybe with the exception of by somebody like Dumbledore, I think he is a great unifier in that respect. Um, again, giving him some credit. Um, but I, I think we do see in, in many ways, like Dumbledore brings a lot of quote unquote outcasts into Hogwarts and if you kind of even went around the staff as we have before, right? We see Hagrid in this chapter yep. become professor of care of magical creatures. And you could make the same argument about Hagrid being an outcast as you could for Lupin. Dumbledore being the great unifier of the outcast, the poor, the tired, like a positive thing to say about Dumbledore. I can't comprehend it. Well, that's okay. It's it's all out of convenience for the overall plan. Oh, right. Okay. Thank you for bringing us back. (laughs) Yeah, I had to bring it back down. We can't be too nice to Dumbledore. Um, Andrew will be back next week and he'll bring the Dumbledore love. Channeling some Andrew. I (laughs) I saw Andrew earlier this week. So, you know, some of the Dumbledore love rubbed off on me, I guess. But Eric, you kind of alluded to this earlier at the at the start of Term Feast. It's noted how angry Snape is at Lupin being appointed. Uh, as Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, the trio surmise it's because he wanted the role. Um, but his anger uh, must also be because Lupin was a marauder. And later Lupin says that Snape doesn't like him because he thought Lupin was in on Sirius's prank to send him to the Whomping Willow 
to see what Lupin was up to. Yeah, I mean, the word that's used is loathing. That's Harry's opinion, that it's loathing that he sees in Snape's eyes toward Lupin. And the reason he recognizes it, the book says, is because it's the exact same look that Snape gives to Harry. And like, man, there is story there. For sure. I wonder if it gives Harry some relief to feel like, oh, like Snape has somebody else to pick on this year. Maybe. I do think, though, Snape, we know that he's predisposed to hate anyone affiliated with James and Sirius. But I'm also wondering if in this moment, Snape suspects that Lupin might be a double agent working with Sirius. Well, if anybody knows about being a double agent, it's Snape. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he knows what to look out for. Um, But he also knows how close these two were when they were at school together. Everyone knows Sirius is on the run. Now Lupin is at Hogwarts. Sirius is allegedly trying to hunt Harry down to murder him. And Snape's ultimate mission, his promise to Dumbledore um, and ultimately to Lily, you know, he made that humus to her or he made that promise to her sort of like in her posthumous state. But like his promise was he was going to protect Harry. And I'm wondering if at this point in time, he sees a threat mm. to Harry because Lupin is there. Mm. That's interesting. Potentially. And I, I would maybe take it a step further with Dumbledore does Dumbledore bring Lupin to Hogwarts to draw Sirius out? Now, I'm not sure the timing of all of it, because we don't know when Dumbledore approached Lupin about the position. Was it before Sirius broke out? Was it after? If it was after, you have to wonder what his motivations are. I like that question a lot, actually. Um because it's using Hogwarts, using Lupin as bait or Harry as bait again, and Hogwarts as the backdrop for it all. Pretty dangerous. I mean, last year, we know that he effectively put Lockhart in this position to expose him as a fraud. Yeah. So maybe. That checks, that checks out. <laughs> Let's talk about Dementors. <laughs> Let's. The title character of this chapter. So sometime into their journey on the Hogwarts Express, the train is halted on the tracks. It's dark, there's confusion, nobody knows what's going on, and the commotion wakes up Lupin, who does, as Andrew says, some cool fire in his hands magic (laughs) to illuminate the scene. But before he can investigate, a Dementor opens the door. And this generally is a very creepy scene, right? If you're a young child who happens to be reading this book, this probably uh, makes you a little nervous, a little scared for what's about to happen. This honestly is the number one thing about the third movie that I think was perfect. Uh, Just the whole con, the way, the execution of the Dementor as a creature. I don't love movie three a lot, but this was bang on. And Harry faints uh, after the Dementor enters the cabin. uh, And it could almost be read like they were targeting him since he was the one who fainted. But I think it's fair to say, as, as Lupin talks about later, that Harry was just the most vulnerable to their presence. And you know that's certainly sad to say, but it's also noted here that you know Harry just didn't faint. He went 
it's almost like he had a seizure, right? Yeah. It says he went sort of rigid, fell out of his seat, he started twitching. Generally, people don't twitch when they faint. So it's almost like he had this episode that was caused by the Dementors. Yeah. And again, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are a lot of traumas that exist uh, in his past that his classmates just don't have. But it is also important to call out uh, the reactions that were noted for both Ginny and Neville. Absolutely. I think I think it really does have to do with those that have suffered the most trauma. Um, the idea that you could in one fell swoop lose all of your happy memories or, or simply not have access to any happiness and really be faced with your worst moments. Ginny, whose worst moments were literally the entire most recent year of Hogwarts, um, she is the she I think comes the closest to fainting, and I really appreciate that it's it's in the text. If you really look at it, she's actively shaking and is worse than Neville's described as being like nervous, upset. But Ginny full on almost went I think as far as Harry did, and it's because she was forced probably in that moment to relive. If Harry overhears you know Lily's pleading when he sees the Dementor, Ginny absolutely heard Tom Riddle. That's in some capacity, maybe even just a word or two, but that voice would have haunted her. It's terrifying. And the other thing I like to compare the Dementor to, uh, and I said like to, but this is my first time doing it. When you first get a tattoo and you don't know what to expect about how it feels, imagine you never encountered this being before that comes in and has this power that sucks all this happiness out of the room. Like the first time you encounter it is going to be the strongest because it's so strange and unfamiliar. And then in the future, it's not that it's any less strong in the future physically, but because you're prepared for it or because you've sensed or felt something before, you know kind of what you're getting into and it's less of a a big deal. It is how strange and unusual and even unnatural the Dementor is that causes everyone to kind of do a double take. And the fact that they've boarded the Hogwarts Express, we've never seen this done before. Where's the trolley lady when this was going on? She could just, you know, swat them back. I mean, she was on break. (laughs) You know, speaking of comparisons, I really like the comparison you had there, Eric. Another thing that the Dementors serve as a metaphor for is depression, right? And sort of the, the vicious cycle that depression can cause if you don't feel like you're able to access any, you know, for the purposes of this story, happy memories to kind of bolster you and pull you out of that cycle, then you're extremely susceptible to it, especially if you're someone who has experienced a lot of trauma, just like Harry, Jenny, and Neville. Definitely. And I know in a little bit, we're going to talk about some of the correlations between depression and chocolate, because chocolate plays a major role in making Harry feel better post-dementor attack. But I do think it's absolutely important to note how others in this train car are reacting. We talked about Ginny shaking like mad, Neville being very pale. And for Neville, I wonder, as a child, could he have experienced what happened to his parents? You know, it's just kind of buried deep within his subconscious. We know his his parents, Frank and Alice, were essentially tortured into madness uh you know and and we d- we don't get like the the full picture there if if young neville was in the room when this was all taking place or was he off with you know his grandmother somewhere or his uncle 
Um, Wasn't he directly offended? Because his uh, the reason he has like poor memory and stuff. I thought he might have been actually directly attacked by the, oh. the Death Eaters. Maybe, um, maybe as a kid, it's horrible to think about. But I was picturing him being in the room. I'm not sure on that though. Well, they were they were part of the order, right? So they might have been out and about on a mission when it happened. But yeah, I'm not sure where exactly Neville was. Maybe the Discord can check us. And it's easy to just pass off him being very pale as him being that you know scared kid in the corner. But we know that there are definitely horrors in his past. And present. Yeah, well, because he's constantly being made fun of and he's living with family members who aren't necessarily very supportive of him. <laughs> so definitely. Yeah. Harry, though hears a scream in his head and it's worth bringing this up because this repeats many times throughout prisoner of azkaban and we know that he's experiencing the death of his mother and he desperately wants to help this person but i don't think at this point he's able to make the connection to what it it is he's actually experiencing because he asks right the rest of the the car did you hear the woman screaming yeah it's that repressed memory that's surfacing because the Dementor is literally pulling this out of Harry. Speaking of pulling things out of Harry, uh, there's there's a lot of discussion that I think can be made here. And I see there's some comments also in the Discord. And just kind of wondering with the Dementor having entered the train car, do we think that it could have removed the Horcrux, that piece of Voldemort's soul from Harry? And and maybe it's even worth taking a step back and asking, do we think that's potentially what drew the Dementor to Harry in the first place? This piece of dark magic that was living inside of, of Harry. There's a couple of ways. I love this theory. I think I always have. But is it that Harry was an anomaly to them? Because these are creatures that very much can like sense your soul or your essence. Or was Harry like a feast? Because he's got like one and a half souls um, in him. Was the Dementor focusing on him? Not personally, but just because, wow, a banquet. It's like a supersized meal for them. Yeah, yeah. Harry's supersized Harry. I, I did look this up a bit in terms of Horcruxes. And it said that they can only be destroyed by leaving the vessel in a state of non-magical repair. There's absolutely no way to recover from the Dementor's kiss. This leaves you in a state of non-magical repair or recovery. Therefore, the Dementor's kiss would destroy the part of the soul that is inside of Harry. Yeah, but it sounds like it would leave Harry pretty much dead. Uh, worse than death, actually. Right. right? Um, if you have your soul sucked out for the Dementor's kiss, um, you're an empty shell. Although I don't know that Harry would be. If the Dementor had succeeded in killing Harry... Uh, or sucking his soul out, sorry, there's still a bit of soul that happens to remain in a living human body um, that is now in need of a soul to fulfill it. I think that'd be a weird and creepy way to reintegrate Voldemort with a body would be to Dementor's kiss, Harry. Oh, so you're saying instead of Voldemort's soul being sucked out, it's Harry's soul that gets sucked out and Voldemort can then live within Harry. I think that is that. That would have made for a much better story. Oh, then what? Yeah. This is a great story. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I love this as like a what if story. But, you know, even if that weren't 
the way that this hypothetical went and the Dementor, you know, sucked out Harry's soul and, you know, the piece of Voldemort's soul that lives in him, the wizarding world would still be doomed because Voldemort still has Horcruxes out there. So this wouldn't take care of him. Yeah. Well, and Harry doesn't have that protection anymore either. Like that Horcrux is actually a a good means of protection for him. It's so interesting. Um, But it's also interesting to me, speaking of Dementors, that they can be talked to, that they understand language. Like uh, Remus, uh, it is said, got up and said, none of us are hiding Sirius Black under our cloaks, finally wakes up. Um, But I have always wondered, because you never hear a Dementor speak, um, but people always talk about what the Dementor's motives and intentions are. And so it's like, I'm assuming they can speak. You wouldn't like it to hear them speak, but they certainly- They probably have really bad breath, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like they I need think a- it's noted that they do. I think th- their breath is like, it smells like decay and rotting things. It's very gross. They need like a whole pack of Mentos at once. <laughs> Thank you. But speaking of speaking to them, well, Lupin notes that that didn't work. Uh, and we get to see kind of indirectly Expecto Patronum used, but we don't get told what it is. So more to come there in the future. But uh, post-attack, we're talking about this earlier, Lupin gives Harry chocolate, tells him to take some, he'll feel a lot better. And there's some notes here about how chocolate actually can help with depression, which is really what the Dementors represent. Yeah, and I think everybody feels this to an extent. I'm chocolate releases endorphins. Um, and I know I always feel better after I eat chocolate. Um, but the National Institutes of Health actually did a study about this and they found that participants in a study um, they did who consumed more chocolate. Um, so participants in the study who consumed the highest quartile amount of chocolate of all the participants had 57% lower odds of depressive symptoms than those who reported no chocolate consumption. So the data is clear, y'all. Have your chocolate. I I love thank you for looking this up. I found it to be very exciting. Makes me want to go get some nice milk chocolate myself. Yeah. So, well, speaking of the trolley lady, she she could have been a, you know, very big help here. But uh, yeah, I mean, free chocolate for everybody. Look, I mean, money like they'll get they'll get their money, you know, bill bill Hogwarts or bill the government or something. But give out all the chocolate frogs that you have. They're probably close to expiration anyway. Um, (laughs) Give the kids some chocolate. Yeah. Uh, It's clear then that the author did her homework here specifically as it relates to the chocolate. One would think. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, she also has spoken very openly about her own struggles with depression. So I think there's personal experience here um, in terms of how depression is represented in the books. I love that, like, Lupin immediately gives them the remedy for what they're feeling, leaves the compartment to talk to the driver. (laughs) it's not before reminding them, please eat the chocolate. Then comes back and it's like, I haven't poisoned the chocolate. Nobody's touching the chocolate. It's just everybody's like so distracted catching up. I mean, in fairness, let's not forget how he was introduced at the start of the chapter and you're just going to take chocolate out of a strange man's pocket. I mean, chocolate is really good. If he seemed to have just defended me against this massive attack, this creature I know nothing about. That's true. I would eat what he gives me. It's also the 90s. 
you know, would you take chocolate from this guy on a train now? No. But in the 90s, would you? Yeah, probably. A lot of things were more acceptable <laughs> back then, for sure. I think by this time, it's also called out by Hermione that Lupin is likely the defense against the dark arts professor. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not at Hogwarts yet, but the Hogwarts Express is an extension of the school. So we have to talk about how this is a security nightmare, right? Uh, Dementors boarding the Hogwarts Express. And this is a lesson on how the Dementors cannot be controlled by the Ministry, by Hogwarts. And it's probably another reason Dumbledore doesn't want them there in the first place. Yeah, among among other reasons. But as to whether it's a proper security nightmare, I'm not sure, because isn't it passed off within this chapter as a security check? The reason they're aboard is to search every compartment for Sirius. This is why Remus says we're not hiding Sirius. And later it is said that they did a security check. I think Dumbledore might even say it or contextualize it that way. Whether or not it was intentional, planned beforehand, the Dementors are very rogue. But that was the reason they're on the train, presumably, not to get a quick bite or a quick uh, meal off of people, but because they wanted to search it before it came to Hogwarts. But there are aurors that could be used for that. You don't need Dementors. And who gave the Dementors this order? Was it the Ministry? Did the Ministry say we need to station Dementors on the tracks at this point before the train reaches Hogwarts so they can search the the I doubt they would have gone that far, but I can see the Dementors, who may be looking for actually a quick meal, uh, seeing it within their purview to go and do this. Plus, I mean, uh, security is only as strong as its weakest link, right? If they don't search the train when Nick comes in, how are they to ever get a hold or a handle on um, contraband? And there's, there's just a lot of questions here. Why not search the train before it left? Like, as far as we know, the train doesn't make any other stops between King's Cross and Hogwarts. So you're assuming that Sirius jumped on a speeding train at some point during the trip, which seems a little bit outlandish. Mm. Yeah, I also just find myself wondering how intelligent Dementors are. I always get the impression that they just sort of do what is in their nature. And whether you're good or bad, whether you deserve the Dementor's kiss or not. Yeah, if they come across you, and you're vulnerable, and there's nothing stopping them, they will come after you. They will turn you into <laughs> dinner um, for that evening. And I don't know if the Dementors are sort of like intelligent enough to have the the conscious agreement between them to say, okay, y'all stay at Hogwarts and watch <laughs> things here. This crew, we're all going to go and check the Hogwarts Express. So that's what makes me wonder if they were sent there by somebody to search the train yeah it's a good question it is a good question and and along those lines i was wondering if dumbledore intentionally put lupin on the train for this very reason right if we think back to well last year we weren't on the hogwarts express but even future books we don't see adults on the hogwarts express very often much less professors going to school Right. Quirrell is already there. Lockhart is already there. And, you know, Moody shows up the way he does in the next book. Umbridge is already there. So it's interesting that Lupin should be on the train to Hogwarts. 
I, I like think right it was place intentional. at right time. Yeah. Right place, right Especially time. because so few mm-hmm. adult wizards can do Patronuses. Um, period. It's a big deal that anyone can. Um, the thing that, I mean, there's your security nightmare. Just the fact that the train itself doesn't have more adults on it. Um, even to save the kids from each other. Like, you know, things really could devolve on there and there's no adult supervision. The trolley lady questionably canonically has maybe some capacity to stop disaster from occurring or instigate it. But who's the driver? You know, the driver who's mentioned twice in this chapter, at least. Um, and what is their capacity? Are they an horror? Are they an ex or or somebody that is on loan from the ministry that can handle real disaster? Because the Hogwarts Express is a target uh, from strategically. I know we're not in wartime, but you usually tend to guard something like this. The, 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 the method of transportation for the next generation of young witches and wizards that's like going through the open countryside, both muggle and wizarding. There'd be more adults on it. Well, and also just think about the protection that Harry got going to King's Cross. You'd think then that they would extend that protection for his trip to Hogwarts. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's this presumed safety. You know, once you're on the train, you're effectively at Hogwarts, right? You are on the Hogwarts Express. It's a direct you know, ride to the castle. There aren't any stops being made except for this one that happens. Um, so it feels like the presumption is that once Harry's on the train, he's safe. Clearly that's false. Um, I do want to call out something related to the Dementors and the discussion we just had about whether or not they were sent there. Um, Justin in the discord is positing that maybe it was Umbridge because she's always involved with Dementors. She actually sends the Dementors to get Harry in Order of the Phoenix in the beginning. Um, We don't, I don't think we have a timeline or really know exactly where she is canonically at this point in the series, but it would be a great connecting the threads moment between books three and five if she were somehow involved in this. I like it. I love it. Well, we do make our way to Hogwarts. And once we get there, McGonagall pulls Harry and Hermione, not Ron, into her office. And uh, we also see Madame Pomfrey. And she's looking in on Harry, right, uh, after this Dementor attack. And she says, I suppose you've been doing something dangerous again. And this is not my note. Uh, this is Andrew's note. But he says it's pretty inappropriate for a nurse to say. Wow. I mean... Harry is the one who's always getting up into trouble. I don't think it's that far. It's a little unfair, a little bit, but that's Madame Pomfrey's personality. That's why she's so funny is she's always so harassed about the kids coming in that are getting into danger and not taking health seriously. I mean, she's kind of on to something. If you really want to get into like how many people are injured and how many she sees on a day to day basis. But this whole conversation about um, whether Harry is well enough to even attend the feast that comes up serves to remind me that I just wanted to talk about how sad it is that Harry is shaming himself for fainting. It's a very, like, we know later there's many reasons for why this happens. He asks Lupin. It's, it's a big moment for his character, but he spends the next, I think, few months really feeling bad about 
the fact that he fainted and there should just not be any of that like stigma about feeling weak. There should be more people, I think, proactively, especially the adults saying it's okay that this happened to you. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not really there. Harry just really is like allowed to sit in his thoughts and feel like lesser of a person for fainting. You could have had Dumbledore step in. I faint all the time, Harry. I am 150, though. (laughs) It, 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 It. I like how you use the word weakness, though, because I think that's exactly what it's looked at by certainly Malfoy. Pretty much anybody on the outside looking in who aren't Harry's friends, right? Malfoy. And we see Malfoy, Crabbe, Goyle continuously make fun of Harry throughout the course uh, of this book for, for in fact, fainting. But you were talking about uh, Madame Pomfrey's humor uh, and her wit, and it comes through again because Harry mentions to her that Lupin had already given him a bit of chocolate, and she says, did he now? So we finally got a defense against the dark arts teacher who knows his remedies. It's nice to see uh, we have a uh, professor who knows what the hell he's doing. <laughs> finally. Yeah, it's it's always nice when a teacher is shown to, or a staff member is shown to compliment and really believe in uh, the abilities of, of another staff member. You always like to see that, I think, growing up in real life too. Whenever you get like a teacher you like gets a good compliment from somebody else uh, that's a teacher. So that's really neat. She's also very salty in the scene about Dementors being around the school. Uh, <laughs> She's going to- Because if you were her, you got to presume this is the first of many incidents that you're going to have throughout the year. Oh, absolutely. Not to mention just general malaise and like more issues that she alone is not equipped to deal with. She knows Hogwarts doesn't have a guidance counselor or a psychology department. Like she's the one who's going to have to start treating people for sadness. Definitely. Uh, And one of the other things that happens in this scene that could definitely be very much overlooked, because let's not forget, it was Harry and Hermione that were pulled aside by McGonagall. Why would Hermione be pulled aside? No real uh, reason, right? I mean, if you're going to if you're going to pull her over for moral support for Harry, why not have Ron there too? But this is when McGonagall gives Hermione her time turner for the year. And it's one of those things that like blink and you'll miss it type of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Harry is too distracted by feeling awful about himself to even question it. He doesn't even listen at the door. He doesn't go anywhere. He's just outside the door, but he doesn't like listen or peek or he has no interest because he's beating himself up. And it is an easy moment to miss, but it is even noted that Professor McGonagall wants to talk to Hermione about her class schedule. Uh, So it's right there. Yeah, that makes an appearance in this. It's so good. Maybe you're led to believe she's taking too many classes or she's too overwhelmed and McGonagall wants to, uh, you know, get her in line. Uh, Oh, yeah, maybe. But here's the interesting thing. Because this one-two punch between McGonagall and Harry and McGonagall and Hermione, these scenes have to occur as they do. McGonagall misses the sorting. When they get down to the Great Hall, the sorting has occurred. But wait a minute, isn't it McGonagall herself, the deputy headmistress, that always runs the sorting? Do we ever see anyone else holding Godric Gryffindor's hat? Uh, Somebody else must have done it. Who was it this year? Hagrid. That makes sense. That would have been fun. I bet Dumbledore did it. Mm, Maybe Flitwick. Snape. Can you imagine? (laughs) No. (laughs) Eric, you... Uh, touched on this earlier, but when Dumbledore is giving his spiel about the Dementors, um, you know, and warning students not to kind of go 
wandering around the grounds. He says that uh, invisibility cloaks will go undetected by them. That was a clear shot at Harry telling him, you know, behave yourself. Don't go wandering around. But, you know, this is a special invisibility cloak. This isn't just any old, what are they made from? Leatherfolds, demiguys, I forget. Demiguys, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is death's invisibility cloak, right? Surely it would have protected him from the Dementors. Um, We'll have to keep an eye out. I mean, I think even in book seven, when he's um, going to the forest to sacrifice himself, he is wearing the cloak and he does pass by a group of Dementors. I don't remember off the top of my head if he started feeling the impacts of being so close to them when he was under the cloak. He's so numb to anything at that moment anyway. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch throughout the rest of this book and the rest of the series if we get any other examples of Harry using the cloak around Dementors and to see what the impact is. Yeah, and then just wrapping up this chapter before we get to some odds and ends, uh, we learn that Hagrid has been appointed as the Care of Magical Creatures teacher and he's able to catch up with the trio after dinner and he credits them with clearing his name uh, after everything that went down last year. So we really have a number of new classes that we're going to be uh, attending this year. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And obviously with Lupin now heading up Defense Against the Dark Arts, it seems like it's going to be an enjoyable year there as well. Yeah, here's where I think the movie differs. This for me, even though we've had this crazy scene with the Dementor on the train, there's a lot that Harry is genuinely looking forward to. It he the chapter ends with him feeling like he's at home finally, um, and it's just this really uplifting, warm thing. Nothing is weird, nothing is awkward, except for this threat of the Dementors and Sirius Black. But everything feels very good. They they clap for Hagrid. They're just this loud celebration. It's pretty much there's no Hogwarts without you, Hagrid. Um, but for this year, and it's it's just extremely touching. All right. All right, uh, let's do some odds and ends from chapter five. Uh, There is hints of someone untrustworthy being afoot. Harry's sneakoscope goes off on the train in the compartment with the trio, Lupin, and of course, Scabbers. And then Ron mentions that it went off as he was tying it to Errol to send to Harry. And so is this a intentional misdirect? The reader would assume it's going off because of Lupin. Uh, just based on how we're introduced to him. But it's also concerning when you think about the school's history with Defense Against the Dark Arts professors, right? We have Quirrell and we have Lockhart as the basis for comparison right now. So one would think that Lupin is not a good guy. Yeah, it it's definitely a misdirect. Um, but we're also led to believe that maybe this sneakoscope is just faulty. Ron noted that it's not a very good well, one. Isn't that a red herring or isn't it? Um, it's a misdirect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a like, like treat every time you read this. And this is like a good reminder for me too. Um, every time we hear the sneakoscope going off, treat it as if it's a hundred percent accurate because Peter, I mean, it, it <laughs> because kind of, it is, it is. Yeah. That's just the greatest thing. I mean, sometimes you just don't know why if you can't figure it out, it's usually cause Peter's around. Um, Scavers is there, but yeah, just we're meant to believe it's bad. They keep talking about how it's bad. Harry throws it in a damn sock. Um, but yeah, it's totally accurate. 
I, I also think it's one of those situations too where you're meant to assume that because Ron purchased it for Harry, it's it's less than, right? It's not as good as like the best quality sneakoscope that's out there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's actually doing its job really well. And I, and I think you can even make a comparison to Ron there too, right? Like Ron always gets the short end of the stick, but he's actually pretty good. So we also get a quick mention of the Defense Against the Dark Arts position being cursed yeah. in this chapter. Just a passing reference, yeah. but uh, worth mentioning. We also get a little bit of history on Hogsmeade. And it's said that the inn... Now, I don't know if the, this is the Three Broomsticks or there's another inn that's there, uh, was the headquarters for the 1612 Goblin Rebellion. And I just thought that that was kind of cool given the plot of Hogwarts Legacy being all about yep. goblins. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's maybe room to expand on that if they want to, because Hogwarts Legacy, of course, takes place a couple hundred years after the Goblin Rebellion. Uh, we also get a, a tease of Thestrals because uh, it's noted that on the way to Hogwarts, their coaches are being pulled by what Harry assumes to be invisible horses. Yeah. And one of the more important odds and ends I thought of this chapter is as they are all going up to the dorms after dinner, there is a passing mention of how Neville forgets passwords. And we know that um, because he is a regular password forgetter, he writes them down. And when he writes them down in this book, somebody gets a hold of them and uses it to get into Gryffindor Tower. We won't spoil, but uh, I thought that, again, it was a little bit of a important note that Neville forgets his passwords. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I mean, we all do, right? Like... Think about today, like, I mean, Neville, you should not feel bad for yourself. Neville needs one password. <laughs> That's what he needs. Just a real strong one. <laughs> Just a real password generator uh, and manager so that he doesn't have to deal with this. Also wanted to note here a little connecting the threads moment. Harry notes during the start of year feast that... He can't help but trust Dumbledore. There's just something about Dumbledore that makes you trust the guy. And I think this is a really nice contrast to what we see in Order of the Phoenix, where he feels completely closed out by Dumbledore and questions whether Dumbledore trusts him. That's a really good point. Well, I think that does it for Prisoner of Azkaban Chapter 5, The Dementor. But before we wrap up, let's give our most valuable wizard chapter, whatever we want to call it, of the week. Really got to hand it to the reason that Hagrid had, can become a teacher is because the previous Care of Magical Creatures teacher, Professor Kettleburn, knew when to throw in the towel and say, enough is enough. I've lost some limbs. It's time for me to retire. And good on Kettleburn for leaving that role with his life still intact. I got to give it to Professor Lupin. Uh, welcome to the series, Remus. He came in clutch with the chocolate and the Patronus charm in this chapter. I think future episodes uh, of this chapter by chapter should be sponsored by like Hershey's or Reese's. Or... That would be great. Uh, and I'm going to give my MVP to Madame Pomfrey just for the sass alone. 
uh, you know, needed much needed humor uh, in this chapter. So thank you to Poppy Pomfrey. Well, if you have feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead, you can pen an owl and send it to MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com to send a voice message. Record it using the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email us that file, or you can use our phone number 192033Muggle. That's 192036844453. It's time now for some Quizich. Okay, last week's question. What is Professor R.J. Lupin's middle name? And the correct answer, the J stands for John. Last week's winners, because we took a week off, we actually had over 72 uh, entries, um, which is high for Quizich. So uh, rather than read the whole list of names, I've picked ones that used an alias. Um, and here they are, last week's winners, a feral furry frogwort, bang-ended scoot, bubbly, googly, jiggly, wiggly, swiggly, tingling, crazy knees... <laughs> I got that out, but now I can't continue. Crazy Neasel Lady, Crookshanks in his wicker basket, Deep Cover Auror, Dementor's Hershey Kiss, I love that one, Dutch Hufflepuff, Fastest Thing Alive, Gilda Lockhart, Gummy Walnut, Harry's Favorite Shirt, Cages Lisa, Lupin's Furry Little Problem, Scabber's Missing Toe, Smushed Golden Snidget, and the batteries for <laughs> Andrew's Vibrating Broomstick. Uh, and Wolfie McWolf. So thanks to all who submitted. Congratulations. You all get points. And we will see you next week. Next week's question. Who guides the trio to their first divination class? Very exciting. Submit your answer to the MuggleCast form, uh, Quizich form on MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. Go to the website, click on Quizich in the main nav. Don't forget, coming up in bonus MuggleCast, we're going to be talking about the recently announced slash confirmed Harry Potter TV show. And speaking of bonus MuggleCast, this episode is happening thanks to the support of muggles like you. Uh, there's much more MuggleCast. Over 50 hours of it waiting for you on Patreon. Pledge now at patreon.com slash mugglecast to receive instant access to ad-free mugglecast, the chance to co-host the show, have monthly Zoom hangouts, physical gifts annually, and much, much more. And Apple Podcast users, for just $2.99 a month, you can now receive ad-free mugglecast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcast app. By subscribing to the show, you're supporting us just like our patrons do. Of course, you can pledge to our patron to receive many more benefits like Eric just talked about. But if you prefer to support us through Apple, we'll hook you up with no more advertising and you'll just get each episode of MuggleCast on Mondays instead of Tuesdays. Just tap into the show and you'll see the subscribe button. Make sure you're following MuggleCast for free in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, leave us a five-star review if they let you. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. That'll do it for episode 607 of MuggleCast. I'm Micah. I'm Eric. And I'm Laura. Thanks, everybody. Choo-choo. 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 <laughs>